Third and goal with 33 seconds to go from the 11-yard line. Taylor rolling to his left. He stops. He looks back to the right side. Still looking. Tyrod waiting. Tyrod scrambling. Back at the 20. Fires. End zone. It is caught for the touchdown by Roberts. It's a miracle in Blacksburg. Tyrod did it, Mikey. Tyrod did it. Welcome to Two Minute Drill Field Hokies Football for Gluttons. This is episode 21, and I think it's going to be a really good one. Uh, not necessarily because of anything I have to say, but because of uh, my guests today and the work that they've done on the topic of hand, the only topic that matters right now to uh, Virginia Tech football. And as far as I'm concerned, the only topic that has mattered since uh, Justin Fuente tried to ice Liberty's kicker on a 59-yard field goal attempt in early November. But uh, I've been ahead of the game a little bit on that. I think the good news is everyone else is all now um, kind of on the same page. Uh, maybe a few stragglers left, but uh, we expect here within 72 hours to have the news of uh, Justin Puente being let go. And uh, really, in some ways, you know, the favorite thing that I like to do and have done um, with both my guests and on the message boards and Twitter for really the last month is the the speculation um uh, on the next coach. So joining me are Iron Twos. Uh, you're not a co-host of this show, but I feel like I have you on um, pretty much every other pod or every other one. And that's that's because you you uh, you really know your stuff and, and have a lot of great uh, insight, as well as uh, Red to Maroon, who's also uh, joined once more, both from uh, 247 Message Board fame. Gentlemen, thanks for coming on. And how are we doing tonight? Great. I'm excited. Hopefully some positive news in the next few days. How about yourself? Uh, yes, definitely. I think things are looking up. And uh, Red, we have you on as well. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, how are you guys doing? Um, obviously pretty pretty excited after last night's win. Um, I saw that game go in a lot of ways. I don't, I don't think a blowout in his favor was really too high up on my expectations list. But definitely pleased with the outcome. That's for sure. It's, it's kind of weird because... You know, we're, we're less than 24 hours removed from uh, beating our rival. We have in what two days or three days, essentially the early signing day, which is usually pretty exciting, pretty exciting week. But um, pretty much the only thing anyone's been talking about is is will Fuente get fired, and if so, when, and who's going to be the hiring. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm I'm here for it. It's, it's a lot of fun. So, well, I appreciate you both coming on. Uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago after the pit game. Iron joined me to to break down uh, the candidates that we've all kind of been researching and talking about. And so I thought of that as sort of like a speed dating. We talked about 10 or 15 candidates for, for a few minutes. And I think tonight uh, we're going to send everyone else home and give the rose to one person, Tony Elliott, who when Iron and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, we, he was we kind of concluded eh, he's probably out of reach. But, you know, things have been coming along really well. And, uh, you know, I admit this is, this is speculation. A lot of people might get a little bit hacked off if we're, if we're jumping the gun there, but when you sort of add everything up and you see a lot of smoke out there, it, 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 
seems to me that he's the odds on favorite. There's, there's mutual interest and uh, I'm excited to, to talk about him. And you guys have done some amazing uh, research and, and work on this. And so we're going to kind of do a deep dive on what you've been looking at, not just with Tony Elliott and his background, but, but also the, the kind of staff that he might build, build uh, on at VT. So um, first I always forget to do this. So I just want to do a little, little shout out to the listeners and, and thank, thanks to them. Cause this is kind of a labor of love that, that I just, we're not selling ads or subscriptions or anything like that. And so I've just noted that uh, I've got a ton of international listeners and I don't know if these are like uh, bots or real people. So I'm showing uh, downloads from Naha, Japan that seem very steady, Dublin, Ireland, uh, Russia, Australia, UK. If any of you are all over there that are Hokie fans, I don't know, in the military or state department or whatever, and you enjoy the podcast, shoot me a note uh, at hunker down Hokie on Twitter uh, would love to to get feedback and really feedback from from anyone. Uh, I, I try to avoid the over promotion, but if you appreciate the, the content, uh, give us the rating and review, and tell a friend, etc. Because um, it's something that I think uh, I think a lot of the the hardcore fans would appreciate, especially with with guys like Iron and, and Red here and what they've been doing. So. Here's what we're going to do. Uh, basically, we're just going to, you know, again, my mind is made up, so I hope it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that within a week or so we're going to have Tony Elliott named as the incoming coach. Uh, Clemson does play Notre Dame Saturday night, so I'm guessing that it uh, wouldn't be officially announced until after that, but I think, you know, the leaks will come hot and heavy here over the next uh, over the next few days. So we're going to talk about who he is, pros, cons, everything else. Um and then, and then the kind of staff that he might build, uh, kind of based on what Red has been doing a ton of work on, uh, and and what he calls the behold uh, staff building that really looks at everything from salary to the coaching tree to everything else. And and again, I think we all admit it's, it's speculation, but it's fun, and it and it does give you a little bit of insight and flavor onto um, you know the kind of staff because we're going to have a lot of changes. So uh, maybe with that, uh, let me stop. Um, Iron, do you want to kind of kick it off and just tell me what first comes to mind when you think about Tony Elliott, um, pros, cons, biography, et cetera? Well, I, I like a, a lot of different aspects of him. I think I'm the the one on the boards posting about it. I really love his engineering degree. I think that's beneficial in a couple aspects. You know, it speaks to his hard work and commitment, but, you know, I don't know too many unsmart people that have an engineering degree. You know, he was also a captain. He was also named the senior year the most respected individual on that team. So that speaks a lot. You know, you wonder about getting a coordinator that, you know, over D-wise, and then they put him as head coach. And I think he's already said that he's not going to be involved, at least in the play calling. So that's a worry. But, you know, I think he's, you know, recruiting-wise, I think he understands and gets it. Um, he's been an ace recruiter. You know, you take that for what it's worth at Clemson. But he's been there since day one when they weren't nearly as good. It's been five years previously, two years at South Carolina State and three at Furman. So he, he has seen different ways. But, you know, everyone, you know, you talk to talk so highly of him and the way he goes about his business. You know, I think it is a risk. I mean, I don't think we, we got to be, you know, talk about the pros and cons. I mean, you're taking a first year head coach um, and then he's going to be doing something that, you know, his best trade is his play calling so that's definitely a worry um but i think out of all the guys left or and all the guys realistically we have you know 
he's seen it. I think there's something to be said when you're you've worked at the best and you've seen not only have you seen it how successful it is now, but I think the fact that he's been there since day one when it wasn't you know nearly what it is now and seeing that transformation and you know Dabo is going to go probably down as one of the best coaches ever. So I think there's you know a lot of validity learning under one of the best, but. You know, very excited. I mean, he sees what it takes to win, support staff, facilities, resources. I also don't think it hurts that we're trying to follow Clemson's fundraising IPTPAY model, and now you're going to have a coach that, you know, has worked there for nine years. So those are all my pros and cons. I do think it's risky. I think there's going to be a bump or two the year one and two that um, we have to make sure we're accounting for because, I mean, anytime you become a first-year head coach or director or manager or anything, there's there's going to be headaches. Yeah, I, I think we definitely have to – got to acknowledge the the risk on this. It's, you know, when Fuente got hired, I thought it was a home run. I was convinced in my mind that that uh, we were going to return to our former glory, you know, and then I look around at guys like, you know, J- Jim Harbaugh and Scott Frost, and they seem like home run hires, and, and, and nothing is a given. It's, it's, it's tough to predict, so there is a lot of risk. Let me just say, you know, I guess just a bit, too. You said Ip- IPTE, I guess it is. Is that the uh, – what's the acronym – for that this is the Clemson fundraising model. It's uh, called I pay ten a year. So when it first started out, every student paid ten dollars a year. Um, I don't know if that's increased to you know eleven, twelve a year, but that's the the base model because then for four years you're given ten a year. You don't even understand it, and then you just become that you know philanthropy is is who you are. And then after you graduate, they have a graduation program, and then you kind of just or you're like, oh, I, I give twenty bucks a year to Clemson football, Clemson athletics. It becomes who they are, so I think it's a, a great model, and you know, going towards that, I think it's is it's amazing. People don't think of ten bucks as making a difference, but it does because it, it can lead to more. And then just ten dollars over all the alumni makes a difference. So, all right, how about you, Red? Any what 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 jumps to you on Tony Elliott? Well, it, it was funny, you know, when uh, this whole thing started, when the rumblings really got hot and heavy with uh, the Fuente era potentially coming to an end. Um, you know, everyone was throwing out names at the beginning from, you know, Shane to Will Healy to, um, you know, people all over the map and, and one that was somewhat consistently coming up. Uh, but like what Iron said, a lot of people felt was out of reach was Tony Elliott. Um, at first, when this name was getting thrown around, A, I didn't think we'd be able to get him because he is a really hot and, and popular name on the market right now. And, and, and B, he didn't really excite me too much. Um, you know, uh, maybe I'm burnt by Fuente, but um, I think there is uh, something to be said for someone that's been successful as a coordinator. And then when they move on to the head coaching duties and that, you know, and I, I alluded to this a little bit, but if they're not calling plays, whether they're an offensive or a defensive coordinator, if they're not calling plays as a head coach, they kind of lose the thing that got them to that point. And, and we saw that with Fuente where he built his success um, initially at TCU as an offensive coordinator. And then he called plays for the first couple of years in Memphis until handing off the reins um, to, uh, to Daryl Dickey, um, who's now the offensive coordinator at AM. But, um, you know, he, he kind of lost some of the luster. We all assumed he was going to bring this amazing offensive system to tech, but in reality, it's not going to do him any favors if he isn't actually the one calling the plays. So um, initially that was, a negative for me with Elliot, but um, I have a few friends that, that did go to Clemson and, you know, are very much involved in the program and, you know, follow it um, similarly to how we follow attack. And each one of them has said, you know, we don't love Elliot for his play calling, um, 
you know, despite being obviously a Broyles Award winner, he's pretty good at that. But where they really think his strength lies is um, as a motivator and as a CEO type. Um, you know, he's a really successful recruiter, has a great background. Uh, he's an amazing story that I'm sure we'll get into in a little bit. But um, they think that even if he's not calling plays as a head coach, he's going to be just as successful because of the kind of person that he is and because of the kind of recruiter and motivator he is, as, that he is. So, um, I yeah, think- I think that's that's a great point. You know, on his, I think if someone just takes the two minute look at his bio, and they'll think they'll think that same thing. Uh, there'll be a lot of Fuente comparisons in. Okay, we're just bringing in another offensive wizard, and can he actually you know run the thing? It's a very legitimate question. But I think when you do take that that closer look at him, um, there's a lot of a lot of differences and a lot of reasons why I think you know he could he could end up being maybe better as a head coach than than he is as a coordinator. And then I, I mean, I would just also say the Clemson fans are spoiled rotten. If you look at the production that this guy has gotten in the development, you know, one of the things that drives me nuts about Fuente is his inability to develop players. And they all just seem to regress. I mean, on both sides of the ball and I watch, um, you know, you watch and, and you could say, well, this is, you know, Clemson has a good ton of staff, but it seems to me that when you look at the development of Deshaun Watson and his improvement, Trevor Lawrence has certainly improved, but also these guys he's bringing in, you know, he, he, he's, it's not just pure talent and I close my eyes and call a play and they're going to execute it and win games because, you know, he had this, the true freshman, right. That he was able to get him ready in three days to perform really well against Clemson. That's something that I don't think just happens by accident and on pure talent. He also, uh, when he won the Broyles award, he actually won it with Kelly Bryant as his QB and Kelly Bryant was pretty, pretty limited as a QB. And so um, I like, I like that aspect of him. but yeah, why don't we talk for people that don't know, we'll kind of assume, I know a lot of us have, have have really dove in, but we should um, let's talk about his, his, uh, his background as a person, because, you know, people will fall all over themselves on that. And I don't, I never want to put too much weight into someone's biography, but I think it does explain who he is. And in my mind, I mean, this is a guy when you really understand everything he's gone through in life, I've, I just see it. It's hard for me to ever see him failing at anything. So I don't know uh, which one you want to iron. Why don't you just sort of go to the basics red? you kind of fill in on what, what people should know about his, uh, his history. Yeah. For those, I guess we'll start real quick that he, you know, he played at Clemson too. So I don't know if a lot of people know that, but you know, he was a walk on and in his last year he got a scholarship. So that just tells you right there that, you know, I'm sure he had offers go elsewhere, but he wanted to play big boy football and then he worked his way there. And then, like I said earlier, he was the captain and then he was also named the most respected player. So, I mean, Clemson, that's a, that's a big time school. So when you're named that, um, he also went to, I thought it was a, a neat little, avenue that he went to like a prep you know air force military kind of prep school kind of deal in high school um so that tells you right there about like his, his discipline and dedication i think who you are as a you know middle school high schooler kind of translates your whole life so he was obviously raised um and then he has that tragic story um sycamore street you know he, he was driving the church with his mom and um they don't go into great detail i don't know if like she ran the lead light or someone ran lead light and and she got flown from the car and the, the car obviously hit him and uh, she passed away. Um, so that's just like a tremendous, um, that's just, you know, really, really, you know, I read that or watched that video and it's, you know, it's pretty tough to imagine going through life without your mom. Um, it seemed like mom was pretty much the the person in that, 
family. So I don't, I don't know um, what the other situation was with dad, but you know, just the, the diversity and overcoming that um, those are things that like I've never been through. So I can't obviously talk about, but when someone can go through something like that and they can get through that, especially as a young child, um, that makes him have the resiliency that the face any obstacle and turn it into an opportunity. So that's, those are little things that no one's going to talk about that. Like you, you see someone that, you know, there's people that, you know, can't fail and there are people that won't fail. And it, it, there's just, it, he's got a guy that will not fail no matter what. And um, pieces like that are what, you know, or what's going to take anyone, especially him to the next level. And no matter what he do, did, and now he's doing football. So um, yeah, just, that, that's good. It's a good way to put it is just won't fail instead of can't fail. And I mean, I'll just add some detail to that. And then I'll, um, I'll put a, uh, I'm going to put a, a link in the show notes. Everyone should really read it if they want to get to know on this bio that, uh, you know, ESPN did of course, a long detailed story on it. And, and Ivan Mazel, um, uh, did a little video for game day at some point on, on the story about how he got hired. But I mean, you know, it broken home. He was homeless at age four living with his mom on the streets. His dad wasn't around, uh, and they got taken in by, you know, a, a, a religious organization. That, and, and that's when he was nine years old when his mom died in his car wreck. And so he bounced around and went back with his dad. Uh, his dad was in and out of jail. And I think he was raised at least through high school with his, you know, by, by uncles or, or other family members. And, but his sister, they interview her sister in this story. And she's like, you know, he would get jobs in high school working construction that helped pay for her braces, like crazy things like that, where he just was so mature beyond his years, even in high school. And then it said, if I understood the timing right, said he was a cashier at Publix to help pay because he's a walk on at Clemson. He decided, I don't know what offers he had. Do you guys know if he had offers? Uh, I do not. I imagine he had at he least. He must not have had any offers. I, yeah. Um, I think he had some from the military academies, like um, I was talking about earlier. He did do that one year after high school and before Clemson at uh, Air Force Prep Academy. So he, he might have had some offers there, but I don't think he had anything from any big time programs at all. Yeah. Well, this article I read made it sound like he was paying his own way at Clemson as a cashier at Publix. So maybe I have that wrong. But anyways, and, and you go on and then he gets his degree. He's captain of the team. He gets a degree in industrial engineering. I mean, he wasn't taken. uh parks and recreation or whatever. So he got, a, and he got hired by Michelin and apparently he was making good money and succeeding and he was just missing, missing coaching. He kind of got his way back into it and found his way back to, um, to Dabo, uh, Dabo and, and kind of the rest is history there. And so, man, the, the, the story of him and it's you know, like you said, iron, he can go into houses. He's going to be very relatable, uh, with other recruits, anything else you would add on that, Red? If I missed anything, I feel. I mean, there's more. His story. If you read the whole, the whole thing, it's it's really unbelievable. No, I, I don't have too much to add. Um, I mean, I, I do think, like you guys said, it's from both a, a um, you know an inspirational, hardworking standpoint for him. I don't think he'll ever let up. And, and, and also, again, it's it's something that he can go to a recruit's home. Um, it seems like he's a, the kind of guy that can relate to you know. Anyone, he walked into um, Trevor Lawrence's house and landed him. And by all accounts, Trevor comes from a pretty affluent family. And then he can go all the way down to, um, you know, some of the um, less fortunate neighborhoods and tell his story and relate to them. So I think he's the kind of guy with that kind of background that um, knows how to get on everyone's level and can really 
the late to high schoolers. So obviously, was, was he was he the lead recruiter for Trevor Lawrence? I believe so. Yeah. Wow, I didn't realize that. I knew he, I knew he reeled in ETN, and ETN wasn't quite as highly rated. I mean, he was a four star, but he wasn't like a five star. Um, but yeah, I think he's you know, and and then even besides just relating to kids, now what he can do is go into uh, uh, recruits' houses with the however many rings he's got, right? Has he got three, two, two rings? And he can say, yeah, I, I developed Deshaun Watson and I developed Trevor Lawrence. And, oh, yes, also I was the running backs coach that developed, you know, Travis, Travis Etienne. And that's got to – even if you're, you know, Justin Fuente-level bad recruiter that has no idea how it works and doesn't try very hard and turns people off, just that alone is going gonna, is gonna to result in a bump. Yeah, absolutely. And he's, I think he's the kind of guy, especially for um, an offensive class to keep uh, a recruiting class together. Um, you know, I have just, heard anecdotally that the players, players love him. Now let's, yeah. all right. So let's go, let's go any, the, the, the negatives. Um, what kind of stands out as risks or, or things we don't like about him? For me, really, one of the big things is that he has essentially spent his entire career at um, at Clemson. I think he had a couple of years at South Carolina State and one or two years at Furman. But um, really, the entirety of his big time college experience has been at Clemson. And on one hand, obviously, that's a positive because Clemson is really the shining example um, of a college football program at the moment. But on the other hand, what's to say that he can go to a program with less resources like Virginia Tech and be equally successful. You know, when he walks in the first day, he's going to have a fraction of the support staff, a fraction of the resources. Is it, he is he going to be able to prove that he can get it done with a quote-unquote lesser program? So for me, that's really something that's big. Um, you know, and, and when we've been looking at a lot of candidates over the past couple of weeks. Um, something that I prioritized has been a wide range of experience, um, more so than even having uh, coordinator duties. So for me, that was one thing that was really big. And again, um, there's always the concern of when you go from a coordinator to a head coach, like I mentioned before, is, are you taking away your strength? So yeah, he doesn't, well, he doesn't have a ton of negatives. I think those are the two big ones that stuck out to me. Yeah. You, you kind of changed my mind on that a little bit too. And I, I still think it's something that, that he can overcome, but I was not really thinking about that or looking at that. And he was, you know, him and fickle or my, it's fine. Like one A and one B, but then you went and sort of analyzed a guy like Charles Huff down at Alabama and showed his his network and all the different people that he's worked with and um, make a good case that 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 that's important. And you know he's gonna he's gonna show up at Virginia Tech and wonder where the nap room is, and uh, they're gonna show him the little you know ten by ten. <laughs> 10 by 10 meeting room. Right, right. He's not going to have a lazy five running backs into. (laughs) So iron any, what, what, what's biggest risk in your mind? Yeah, I think that, I mean, I think someone, it maybe it's happened, but someone should write a, you know, a research paper on coaches that went from a coordinator to head coach and the success rate. Um, I think obviously that's, we're going to beat that dead. I mean, it's just a risk. I mean, he's never done this. So right there off the bat, we're taking a coach, that you know has never had no experience as head coach, but let's be honest, a lot of NFL teams and a lot of college teams are after this guy. So you know whatever they're exactly looking for, you know it's obviously receptive to a lot of programs. One thing I looked at that I think not a huge risk, but he's never been like a GA or a quality control coach. Why that's beneficial is you, when you're that 
you kind of see everything and you you're like when you're a GA or quality control coach, you're just constantly breaking down film. That's when you learn like little nuances of little things because you're constantly just breaking down film, doing odds and ends for assistance because they don't want to do them. So, you know, you get used to doing all these little things that if you're just an assistant, you may not you take for granted that you don't, you know, it's just done and it's whatever. But when you're a you know a GA quality control coach, there's so many little odds and ends that you learn because you know you're the low man on the totem pole, so you got to break down the film, you got to do this, do that. Um, so that's a worry because he's never been that. He's gone straight to you know assistant coach and then straight to OC. So those are my two biggest worries. I think he can definitely overcome them. Um, I think playing in a what's attractive to Virginia Tech is you're playing in the ACC and the Coastal. So I think if you were to take a you know an SEC job. I think his struggles would be even higher. Yeah, that's um, interesting about that kind of that that background. But you know, you pointed out he's got this degree in industrial engineering, which I don't want to make I don't want to make too much of it. But just in my experiences, I love the idea of engineers. You know, in almost any line of work, and just because they're problem solvers, right? So they they identify problems and they try to fix them. And so I would guess I would hope that they would. He's going to come in with that mindset that they have, where they look around, and they say, "Well, this isn't working." And they think about ways to to solve it, even if it's whether it's the X's and O's or just the way the program is run. You know, from everything to the Hokie Club to the uh, to the to the resources to the recruiting trips and all that kind of stuff. So I love just the idea I, of having. I, someone with an engineering mind um, handling that. I just want to add one quick, like you said about that. I think the biggest problem with Fuente is like, he was so reactive. We need a coach that can see three to four steps down. You know, every, all the engineers I've I've been lucky. I got a couple, a couple friends with them. They say one of the biggest things is like you said, they got to be innovative, creative, and think four to five lines down what, what's going to go on. And I think that's something we lack. I feel like we've never learned from anything or innovative and creativity is so low and, you know, that's obviously Fuente's kind of personality, but like you said, engineers, they're just constantly thinking long-term and what's the, if I do this, what's the third or fourth problem that could happen? And I think that's an aspect that goes really uh, under-recognized. Yeah. I don't want to talk too much about Fuente because he's, I, in my mind, I just want to get him out of my mind because he caused so much grief. But to me, the big downfall when the, when the stories are all written, we look back and I think he can be a successful coordinator somewhere. I don't know that he could be a successful coach necessarily but it's more the arrogance of thinking i don't i am so smart with play calling and uh analysis and evaluations of players that i can just have my buddies be my staff and i'm not going to worry about recruiting because no matter who i'm going to recruit i'm going to just outsmart the opposing coach and it was sort of an arrogance i think which is it was his sort of greatest flaw and the inability to, to recognize, you know, he had to just attack almost every single this big boy football. This isn't, uh, you know, Memphis and uh, Memphis and SMU. Um, all right. What else? Anything? I mean, look, the only other thing I'll say that strikes me about Tony Elliott, and I'm going to, I'm going to post a few um, uh, uh, interviews and things at the end of this. People can kind of listen to a little five minute long things, including his Broyles award when he won the Broyles award in, in, in 2017. He's very serious. He, he, he has similarities to Fuente. He's, he's kind of bo- He's a very boring interview to put you to sleep with that sort of monotone. But I think he's, again, I think he's going to be different because he comes across as so humble and sincere, whereas, you know, Fuente almost had a little bit more of a Bill Belichick. I'm just going to give you the, the minimal amount of information. And, and when it comes to, tell me if you disagree, guys, but 
like you know the other part of the problem at least from a fan perspective is the way fuente closed everyone off no access to information um it seems to me nine years under Dabo, he's going to bring a lot of change in that area and how, just how the program is run and visibility to fans and fundraising and all that. Does that agree? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think, and I don't know this for a fact, but, um, you know, when you look at my, look up Tony Elliott on YouTube, it seems like he does a interview in his office after every single game, um, which is obviously quite different from, what we've seen with this past regime. Uh, I've never heard Brad Cornelson's voice. Exactly. I, I do not know what his voice sounds like. <laughs> exactly. So, and, and I think that was something that was so hard for a lot of tech fans because when Beamer was around, we had open practices. He ran his own website, beamerball.com, that basically gave practice reports for every practice and, um, you know, gave access to all the players and all the coaches and everything. And then we go to Fuente and that the program shut off. So, it's going to be a breath of fresh air if Elliot is indeed the the hire. Um, you know, we're going to get access to not only him, but um, if he follows Dabo's model, then we're going to get access to the the, the coaches and players as well. So, um, that, people are going to be huge. psyched. I, I, the spring game will be on ESPN. <laughs> you know, I mean, all these just little things that we've kind of gotten used to over the last five years. When you when you don't have something, and then suddenly you get it. I think it's going to be great. Maybe I'll be again. Maybe we're wrong on this. Maybe the guy's a bust. Um, but I think we saw, I think we've went over the, uh, the big, uh, big pros and cons. I'm not sure. Is there anything we missed just on, on, on Elliot's background? If not, well, let's talk about who we think he might, uh, build a staff with. Sound good? Yep. Yep. Nothing for me. That's all you read. All right. So red, so if everyone that knows, if you're not on two, four, seven, you enjoy the podcast red, um, I don't know what I don't know what you do in real life, but you you are a meticulous developer of these little spreadsheets to look at the the coaching staff and the coaching tree that someone has, and then from there, kind of building a potential theoretical staff. And I mean, we should say this again: the, the, the odds of hitting on these, you probably hit on a couple, but it's still in my mind like a good mental exercise to think. Who's they? Who have they worked with, and who would be some plausible? And one that we were all talking about, including was in your um, uh, one of the, one of the write ups you did was Chad Morris. Who there's some buzz that you know Chad Morris could be be interested in joining because I assume he's out of a job with Gus Malzahn being fired. So why don't you kind of give the first shot at at what you did in the behold exercise? <laughs> sure. So um, for those that aren't aware, uh, this whole exercise kind of started when. Um, Shane Beamer was really the hot name that was around everyone's lips uh, for come, come to tech. Um, and he was a pretty divisive name on the board. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people, uh, myself included, saw him as a guy that could relate to the fan base and bring back a lot of the old feelings. Um, and one of the things that was really a big, uh, a big positive for him was all the experience that he's had. Um, from you know South Carolina originally to Tech to Georgia to Oklahoma, um, he's been around a, a ton of big programs, and um, so uh, and, and just by the nature of of my job um, during COVID, I've I've had normally I'm I'm on the road quite a bit day to day driving around to different properties, and uh, so obviously with COVID happening, I've you know some more free time on my hands as I'm not actually traveling, um, so I. Decided one day to sit down and, and put together a, a, a coaching staff based on Shane Beamer's connections. Um, 
And your rule was, and your rule was, they had to have coached together at some point. Basically, is that, that there just? three rules? One was um, they had to have some connection to either Shane or Virginia Tech. Um, I think I've made one or two exceptions along the line where uh, they had a connection to Virginia, not necessarily the school or the coach. Um, the second rule is each person on the new staff would be either be getting a raise um, or a promotion or would be holdovers from the final staff. And then the third rule was I was going to try and get the uh, the salary pool, so the total salary cost for all the coaches as close as I could to um, the salary pool that we have now. So currently we have about seven and a half, seven point five two million for Fuente and his staff. So every staff that I put together had roughly the same amount of money allocated towards those salaries. Yeah, um, it's great. So who, who, who go, why don't you go over them quickly? Who, and, and um, assume that a lot of people don't know these names because I certainly didn't. I only knew a couple of them. Um, yeah, go so, for it. Yeah. So for Elliot, I actually I put together two different staffs. Um, and one of which was because uh, the, the original one I put together, I had, uh, Chad Morris as the offensive coordinator, and I put another one together because I didn't think Morris was um, all that realistic. But now that, like you said, Morris is likely out of Auburn, and there is some buzz around him um, coming to Virginia Tech as an offense coordinator, this one actually might have ended up being the most realistic. Um, so we'll start there. Uh, Chad Morris, offense coordinator, uh, previously at Auburn until about seven hours ago. Um, Morris was actually Elliott's quote unquote mentor. Um, when they were when he was at Clemson, so Morris was the offensive co- coordinator after Billy Napier at Clemson under Dabo. Um, he left to go pursue a head coaching job initially with um, SMU, and then went on to Arkansas, where he was fired from Arkansas, and then ended up um, ended up at Auburn. So obviously, that's an easy connection. Um, you know, Elliot's quote unquote mentor uh, would be under him. They ran a similar basically an extension of the Morris offense when he left and when Jeff Scott and Elliot took over. Um, so it would just be a really seamless fit there. Um, and actually, it makes a ton of, it makes a ton of sense. I want to interrupt you a bit. You know, I, I was kind of fired up on, it, and then I went and started to look on Chad Morris and I'm a little nervous because man, did he bomb at Arkansas? I mean, you talk about Fuente losing to Liberty. They had their own, um, you know, he lost to like North Texas, got blown out by Western Kentucky. And so, I, I mean, and then Auburn didn't exactly tear it up this year either. So any, any thoughts on, on that? I mean, again, when he was at Clemson, he was, he was great. Yeah. So this is kind of the reverse of, uh, of, and then I'll let you chime in here in a second, but this is kind of the reverse of what we were talking about with Elliot, where there is a different skill set between an offensive coordinator and a head coach. Um, you know, just because he was a successful offensive coordinator at Clemson doesn't mean he's going to be a successful head coach at his next couple of stops. Um, it's just a different skill set. Uh, it's just a different way of thinking. So I don't take too much into account his stops at SMU and at Arkansas. And then for Auburn, he was only there for one year this year. And uh, really, they were pretty bad on offense last year as well. So that very easily could be a, um, a personnel issue, too. See, What do you think yeah. about Morris, Iron? You, at first, I was like, "Why?" You know, we're hiring this guy who, you know, Arkansas. They he did not win a Power Five game in his two years there. They were that bad. But then I was like, "Let's let's like use this as a strength and a, a positive." That's like he's basically having like a Jerry Kill type Tony Elliott. You know, he was a head coach at SMU. Actually, turned that program around, 
And then, you know, obviously it was very unsuccessful at Arkansas. So he's he can ta- tell them what to do, but more likely, more likely tell them, you know, hey, this is what we did and it didn't work. So I think it could be beneficial in that aspect. Um, my, my gripe is, you know, he was successful as an OC at Clemson, very. But, you know, this year was tough. And, you know, this year is tough, you know, spring ball and implementing. I, I just don't think Bo Nix is, is that good. But my biggest thing is he's probably going to command a big salary. So we're going to spend, you know, we're, we don't have this big budget, at least yet. So we're going to spend more of our budget on an OC that, you know, I don't, I don't know. I think with your head coach being an, an offensive guy, go get a guy who's, you know, unproven or proven, but not, you know, maybe a younger guy where you're going to, you're obviously going to be more involved in the offense and have your say. So let's save a little bit more money there when you're, you, that's your specialty and you can kind of mold and mentor them and spend a little bit more maybe on the offensive assistance or the defensive side. So I'm not against it per se, but I just think it's probably going to command a big salary. And, uh, you know, he hasn't been a successful offensive coordinator since what, seven, eight years ago. So I, I just, I, yeah, I personally it's would a, it's a mixed bag. I mean, I, I like that it's attractive because they're going to run the same system. So they'll hit the ground running on that and they know each other and all that. And plus he has the head coach experience. So at least, you know, even if he failed as a head coach, like you said, there's still some just how do you run a program things that um, that would be helpful. But so who who was your other I don't I only have one of your uh, behold lists uh, read. Why don't you talk about your other coordinator? So another guy. um that I had was Willie Korn. He is the offensive coordinator at Coastal Carolina. Um, for people that have been following recruiting for uh, as long as I have, that name might sound a little bit familiar. He was actually the only quarterback um, recruit that was rated ahead of Tyrod Taylor coming out of high school. Um, so he's a five-star quarterback, went to Clemson, got injured his freshman year. Um, I think it was, it was a shoulder upper body injury of some sort that really stripped him of his um, arm talent, uh, never really made it at Clemson, had to drop down a level, um, played a couple of years there, um, never really did much of anything other than that. But um, obviously the Clemson connection is there. Uh, he now coaches for um, for Jamie Chadwell at Coastal Carolina, uh, who's as of today a top 10 team. Um, so obviously he's pretty successful. Um, I had him as the offensive coordinator, quarterbacks coach, and passing game coordinator. And, and one of the things that really intrigued me about that hire was that um, Tony Elliott's always been uh, mostly a running backs coach. I think he had a couple of years as a receiver coach, um, but his strength obviously lies uh, as a running back coach, which is what he's doing now at Clemson. So the combination of Elliott's running game knowledge and Willie Korn's passing game knowledge is something that really intrigued me. All right. So Iron talked about the budget. What, what did you have a budget for Morris and Korn? Budget for Morris, I had about nine hundred thousand dollars. I think with his firing, he that could drop down quite a bit. He was making about seven thirty-five at um, Auburn. I had uh, I had to bump that up quite a bit to uh, to get him, you know, away from a cushy job. But now that he doesn't have that job, I think we could probably get him for like similar to what he was making at Auburn, which would help. Um, but Willie Corn, I only had him at about six hundred thousand uh, dollars. Okay. So, which might be a more realistic number for for what we're given a tech right now. Well, we can all agree there'll be either one would be upgrades. We could swing a dead cat and bring in a coach and be an upgrade over uh, Brad Cornelson. So, <laughs> all right, why don't you keep going? Who let's do, let's do defense. And then we'll talk about position coaches kind of a little more quickly. Okay. So uh, both lists, I actually had uh, 
the same combination for co-defensive coordinator. Um, I had uh, David Blackwell as the first co-defensive coordinator and linebackers coach. Um, David's the uh, he's now the the defensive coordinator at Louisiana Tech. He was formerly the defensive coordinator at ODU the year that um, they upset Virginia Tech. So some people might be a little bit against that, but um, he did overlap with Elliott uh, at when they were at Clemson at 2003. <clears throat> Blackwell was a uh, linebackers coach, so they have some connection there. And then um, I had him sharing duties with Todd Bates, who is currently the defensive tackles coach and recruiting coordinator at Clemson. Um, he was the recruit named the recruiter of the year in 2019. Um, obviously, everyone understands how dominant uh, Clemson's defensive line has been for you know going on a half a decade now, uh, probably even more. So obviously, he's a pretty successful coach. Um, but I think the only way we could get him and pry him away from Clemson would be to uh, to give him a significant raise. So I had him uh, getting about a $200,000 raise and then obviously giving him some more responsibility there with uh, co-defensive coordinator responsibilities. So Blackwell is an older guy. I think he'd be a good mentor for Bates um, and they can kind of ham and egg it, uh, so to speak. Um, My understanding is Bates is 37 years old. I don't know about Blackwell. Um yeah, I mean, I, I personally, look, I, the recruiting, I just give so much weight to that where Todd Bates, National Recruiter of the Year, and he's coaching their defensive line, which is so dominant at Clemson. Maybe give him a shake at D.C. as a you know, standalone if you feel like you need to do that to um, to give him the job. So I, I love that uh, choice. Any thoughts, Iron, on either one of those guys? I love that combo. Um, I, I just I'm interested to see why, you know, he's worked under Blackwell, Todd Bates did. For, for a few years, and then he's been at, with Brett Vettables for four. So, I mean, that's six, seven years of working under two guys that are phenomenal. You know, I obviously know he's young, but I think, you know, why why is it, you know, too young? I mean, we had, you know, Jay Ham who had a little experience. So I would not be against making him the DC, but I would love if somehow we could make that co. I, that's, that's my top list right there for defense. I think if you – You'd have to give him money, but I think it's also responsibilities because he obviously wants to be a DC. So you do the code DC. We'd get Blackwell for cheap. So if you could bake both of those like 650, 700 ish, and then give, hey, butt baits next, whenever we're just going to do this for a year or two, and then you're the guy. So if you give him something like that, and obviously they're probably buddies working at Clemson, but I think, you know, we got to prioritize that D line. And with him being D tackles, you can keep D tap which I would love. So I think that's the winning combination. And like, you know, Red did a great job. All those intertwined. So it's not like we're making this scenario up. There's, I think this yeah. is a realistic possibility. Yeah. I mean, people might think, okay, this is the dream. And, and sure, of course, Elliot would have his own ideas, but there, there's stuff does make sense. And Blackwell, if I recall right, was, was kind of considered a, a, a candidate for Bud Foster's job. Wasn't he? Wasn't, didn't his name come up because everyone said, you know, he had a great uh, resume and could help us in, uh, you know, Virginia Beach area. Yeah, yeah, he did. Um, I know that was a po- popular uh, pick for for Chris Coleman. I think he's a huge My Todd gosh, Bates fan. With, so, with, uh, with 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 Bates, Blackwell, and Tap, we would we would lock down uh, the defensive linemen in the state of Virginia, which right. puts up fantastic defensive linemen. So. Yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're right, a defensive end in uh, the seven five seven, imagine Todd Bates and and Daryl Tap walk into your living room and. Yes, I mean, the list list of first-round draft picks that these guys 
would be able to show uh, is unbelievable. And so, and by the way, hey, first, let's just say, I mean, I think everyone kind of agrees and tell me if I'm wrong. Say, most likely a new coach is going to keep one, two, three guys. And it seems like on most of these that you've done, you've kept uh, Daryl Tapp and Ryan Smith, our DB coach. Um, is that is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think just the word that we've heard around the boards and, and in various places that um, Wit, while it won't be a um, it won't be a requirement, Wit's hoping that he can uh, keep those two guys around. You know, they're both young, they're both good recruiters. And they're both cheap. Uh, both of them make under $200,000. And then I keep them at that same salary on these lists. So um, in terms of ROI, I think those two guys are, are well worth uh, keeping around as long as the new defense coordinator is, is obviously okay with that. And Van, Vance Vice has to be the third one you'd keep if you're keeping someone on offense, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. I would obviously keep him. Um, I, I put him on some of my earlier lists, but then ended up taking him off. He's been a Fuente guy. Um, for a long time, and, and really, I don't see any of those guys sticking around. And um, there have been rumors in, in past off seasons that the SEC is um, sniffing around Vice a little bit. Realistically, yeah. well, he'll, he'll, he'll stick around if if Fuente's coaching it. Um, I don't even know, but you know, uh, Illinois State uh, and the offensive line coach there makes one hundred and ten thousand. He'll he'll stick around Blackbird. So <laughs> I, I'd like to keep Vice. Absolutely. All right. Keep going. Um, so we, we talked about it a little bit, but obviously Daryl Tapp, um, keeping him around. Ryan Smith, I'm moving him from uh, corners to safety coach. He was um, safety coach at JMU, where he produced several um, several different all-conference performers there. So I think he's, he's probably a little more suited and a little more comfortable with that. Um, so hopefully he, uh, you know, he take, take that adjustment well and hopefully sticks around because I do really think he's – He's a young rising star in the profession and, and his recruiting chops have been pretty evident this, uh, this cycle. So would really like to keep him around. The next guy I had was uh, Chip West. Um, he's really, really well known uh, in the 757. I, I kind of cheated a little bit on this one because he doesn't have any ties to Elliott or Clemson or Virginia Tech. Um, but he um, was really the architect of Mike London's um, entry into the 757 when he was the coach at UVA when they landed all those guys, the thoroughbreds. Um, thoroughbreds. He, yeah. Uh, he was the guy that really got their foot in the door. Um, and if we're you know going to try and make it an inroad tactic that area that was so fruitful for us, I think he'd be um, be a big time big time hire for us. He's up at Syracuse. Are you right saying now. he's going to run the? Or are you saying he's going to run the church outreach program? <laughs> If any, if Elliot has anything to say with it, um, uh, so yeah, no, he, he like I said, if if we're really going to try and make a heavy um, emphasis on Clemson, he's a guy to get really good at something. He would be super successful in that area. Okay, why don't you round it out? Uh, the other guys, I don't know, but hit him, hit him quick, just to if there's anything notable about him. So a couple guys. Um, I stole from the Arkansas staff and, and uh, these I'll give some credit where credit's to um, Hokey for Life 12 on uh, on the VT Scoop board. She actually found those guys. So, um, the offensive line coach is Dustin Fry. He was a, uh, a, a GA at Clemson when Elliott was coach. Um, he's out of a job currently, but uh, he was Arkansas's um, offensive line coordinator under, uh, or sorry, offensive line coach under Chad Morris um, at Arkansas. So 
I think he's a good guy. He had some um, recruiting success there, pretty young. Um, and he is obviously comforted cheap. Uh, I had him at about $350,000. So um, I think he would be a good one to look at. Uh, the next guy was um, Justin Stepp. He was also a GA at Clemson um, with Elliott. He is currently the wide receiver coach at Arkansas. Um, he's making about 400 grand right now, so he'd be pretty expensive. He landed on um, the 35 under 35 list, which is one of the better um, coaching lists for for young up-and-comers, so it's pretty impressive. And uh, he showed off his recruiting chops last cycle with two four-star receivers um, going to Arkansas. Uh, a lot of good there. Um, again, he'd be a little bit expensive, but I think it's something that we can we can probably afford. <clears throat> and then uh, the last two guys I had were, were John DeCoster. Um, he's right now he's the tight end coach at ODU. Um, again, I cheated a little bit on this one, but with the ODU ties, I think he's he's probably pretty reasonable. Um, before this year, he was a, a GA at LSU, um, and he was really credited with being the uh, the lead recruiter for Eric Armstead who was the number one tight end in the country last cycle. Um, and I know Thad Moss, who was one of the stars of that LSU offense last year, credits him with with a lot of his development as well. So I think he's an intriguing young coach. Um, and then the last guy I had was was a, a name that a bunch of Hokie fans will, will know and love, and that was Shane Graham for a special teams coach. Um, right now he's a special teams analyst at UF, um, but when he was the special teams coordinator at Central Michigan, uh, they had a ton of success. I'm not going to rattle off all the stats but i believe they had <clears throat> almost double digit um block kicks and, and several punt return touchdowns as well so he's a guy that tech fans love and he's obviously a uh, an accomplished um special teamer so i think he'd be a good hire for the team good stuff all right so one thing i guess i'll say is you did these for what four or five different potential coaches you did one for you did shane graham and luke fickle and um uh charles huff but uh Elliot is unique because he's only ever been at one place. Like how much harder was this to do without that tree? Because, and I don't ask it as just a, how hard was it? What I mean is, you know, one of these questions the iron's always making is, well, you know, how do you, how do you build that staff when you don't know guys? Do you want to want it like kind of like Fuente did, which is I'm going to go to Memphis and I'll bring all my guys on offense and Bud will keep his guys on defense and that's how we're going to leave it. So, which is, I think a concern. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. And that was, again, one of the negatives that I had with him was, um, you know, he's only been at Clemson. And Clemson's a little weird for all these big time programs because Dabo doesn't really have much of a uh, a coaching tree. So um, he keeps everybody <laughs> exactly. Um, he pays it more than everyone else. So a little, little tough, yeah. but, it, but I think it's a pretty good staff. Yeah, and by the way, for everyone, Elliot's making one point one point six million. I think if he's if there's any other higher paid you know, coordinators in the country, there ain't very many, but that is a, like, I mean, that'll be, if, if he gets hired, I make that point because if he gets hired, one of the things we'll want to watch right away is, is he bringing, you know, is he, is he comfortable just going to some school where he doesn't know a guy in, in interviewing him and bringing him in, which to me is a positive sign. Um, Toes, you got any comments on Red's thing? What did he get wrong or uh, uh, what would you change? It, yeah, I, I'm not be honest. I don't, you know, it's so tough to like say who's your receiver or your tight end coach because that's all based upon the OC. I mean, um, so if you get the OC wrong, you know, what's the use? So Red did a phenomenal job. So I don't, I don't know a lot of assistant coaches like just looking at that. But my biggest thing is, I think with him being there nine years, 
you know, I think we, you know, you look on paper like, oh, he's only been at Clemson, but you you spend so much time getting to know other coaches through various people and your support staff always changes with your GAs analysts that you learn so many different people through so many different channels that his coaching tree, I guarantee, is really big, but on paper, you it's not. So it's really hard to understand who he knows and who he doesn't, but I guarantee he knows. I mean, Dabo knows a ton of people and I mean, it's just it's just very hard on paper to get an understanding. But I do think this is a unique situation where it's not like he's coming from a smaller school. Like he's not going to be able to bring many Clemson people. Todd Bates probably at the most, and maybe maybe one offensive staff. That would only be if you'd make them either the offensive coordinator or they just have a you know standout relationship. So that's going to be unique in the sense of he's not going to be able to bring many many players or coaches from Clemson, support staff wise. I think he will be able to, but um, coaches-wise, financially, he's just not going to be able to bring more than probably two at the tops. Yeah, it, it, to me, it's just it's still it's still exciting because uh, when when we when we had the Fuente transition, he just brought he just brought his Memphis staff, and he I mean that's just another one of these lessons learned with a lot of those people that that he brought, and hopefully, um, you know, yes, the Clemson staff are much much, much more experienced, but he can cast a decently wide net. So I kind of want to watch that. Well, I don't want to dwell too much. We actually talked an awful lot more about, about staff, but look, I think bottom line takeaways, this is, this is unbelievably exciting. I think it's the most important moment in the, for the program, right? Um, if we have a second failed coach hire in a row, it's going to be so much tougher because then, then you're looking at six, seven, eight years with, uh, fans tapped out, and you can imagine the fundraising situation on that. Wit, I mean, I, if Wit doesn't get this hire right, he could lose his job, right? When you think about just everything the athletic department needs with revenue and how important it is to that. So, um, any any kind of big picture thoughts before we wrap it up? No, I agree. This this is tough, and and everyone wants to talk about Wit. Like at the time, Fuente, fantastic hire. Even with him bringing the staff, like. I mean, my argument would be if I'm Fu, I'm like, well, I we're this successful with it. Why are why are you going to tell me? And then I mean, look at Wiggins; he was one of their best. You look at Vance Vice; I think Jalen Scott, um, he would have been really good. But I think it was his hires once, you know, like Brian Mitchell. I mean, those were hires that were bad. But I think you're right. I mean, this is this is exciting, but this is nerve wracking because Tony Elliott zero experience as a head coach. If this goes south. I mean that that's you know when's that will be probably almost ten years since Virginia Tech was ten wins because you know it's been two thousand right. seventeen so or so it's it's tough it's you know it's very exciting and in, what I like about the hire now two thousand twenty one abs or I guess it'd be two thousand twenty two class absolutely loaded in state North Carolina Tennessee so those surrounding states so you hope to get that new car smell going to be really tough with COVID no one visiting can't get off campus so you wonder if that will hamper that but. You know, most coaches get a new bump. And I think if you're going to do it, this class with 2022, how loaded it is, I mean, you have a chance to just bring in. And with transfers nowadays, you can kind of stockpile and, and make it so until those guys are developed. But very this, excited. I don't think people realize how lucky we are on timing. And look, let's face it. If there was a few other jobs open, I don't think we'd even be in the market for Elliott. This, the guy is hot. The, you know, Carolina Panthers wanted him. Bunch of G five schools wanted him, but there's just almost nowhere. I mean, if you were to rank the hottest potential hires, he's got to be top three or four nationwide. And normally, Virginia Tech wouldn't 
wouldn't be in the running for, for that, but uh, because there's not many jobs open, it's Michigan and Auburn, right? Arizona or uh, yeah, Arizona. And uh, we don't have Nebraska open. We don't have Tennessee open, all those kinds of places, you know, Tennessee would throw more mon- double the money that we could at this. So I think, I think we're really lucky. And then we're lucky with the, I've gone over this before, you know, a million times, but we're going to be real lucky in terms of just rebuilding the roster. He's not going to have to wait for all the freshmen he recruits to, to come through the system. There's going to be all kinds of movement and hopefully he can bring in a few key players, might even bring a couple of Clemson players that are buried on the depth chart um, that can come, you know, and help us help us next year. Yeah, I think. All I right, think we, guys. Yeah. I think we got, last thing, I think we got to make sure, you know, we talk about the university and administration, how unsupportive or whatever. You know, they, they, it looks like they're going to fund this or at least 70% of it. I mean, we got to give, you know, President Sands and you know, that some respect because if they didn't and they were like, hey, it's your issue, not mine, uh, we'd be sucked for another year, probably two with Fu. So I think we, we, you know, we do a lot of blame with the administration and, and university, but, you know, they, they shut up and put their mouth to it. So, uh, that's that, a great point. So yeah, that's uh, I'm excited. So, all right. So so what what do you guys what what's your gut on Elliot? Um, just give me your honest. Is it just I don't know? Is that the answer on it? I I feel really good about it. I just watched a whole ton of interviews with him, and I just feel like the this is a guy that's not he's not going to be denied success once he's in charge. Now we may, if he's successful for three years and then a better opening comes, he could, he could leave us for a better job, but he also has said about how he loves the Clemson small town feel. And that's, you know, so I think he's going to be a bit of a, he'll be a fit. He's an engineer, right? He's going to be a fit culturally with us. So I'm hoping maybe, maybe he'll not want to necessarily, you know, move around a lot, but I guess that's my last question. I kind of rambling, but what, uh, what's your gut? Brad, you go first. I, 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 you know, I've come a long way, Anthony. Uh, I think I mentioned at the beginning of, of the podcast uh, that I wasn't sold, but uh, I've come a long way. Um, like you said, I think culturally he'll, he'll be a great fit. Um, I think he's just a guy that gets it. Uh, and it's hard to say, you know, that's kind of a unquantitative thing, but he just – he understands what it takes and, and, um, you know, obviously recruiting is, is the lifeblood of the program. And, um, everyone I know around the Clemson program says he's our best recruiter. So even if he's not successful on the field, um, uh, he'll at least leave the next guy in, in a better position talent wise than uh, Fuente is unfortunately leaving, um, you know, Elliot or wherever we end up hiring. So from that perspective, I think he, um, He's a really high upside and somewhat a high floor higher as well. So, um, and you and just so everyone knows, you were Shane train all the way. So oh, it yeah. took, took a while to get you off the Shane train. <laughs> I, I was, I would accept Shane, but I was not. He wasn't my top five. Uh, how about you, Iron? Yeah, I gut? mean, I guess the gut would be that we do hire him. I mean, I mean, we're talking about like we will, but I mean, I'm nervous that you know, and today you know, Auburn and Illinois open, so. Um, Illinois is actually paying Lovey Smith over five million, so they're obviously committed. But I do think he understands that you can win in the ACC, and especially in our conference, he's not playing Clemson every year. So ex- excited to see who he brings in and who he can get. Can he get any guys that either taking the same amount of money or even a little less, but they want to be part of something special and something different? Um, I think I do think we need to temper a little bit. I think next year, while we're going to have some talent depending on who transfers out. 
there's going to be some bumps. First year coach, I think his first hire needs to be an assistant, a special assistant like a Jerry Kill or an older guy who's been through the ringer. Um, but I'm very excited. Um, I think you know I'm going to puzzle this. What are you guys going to do when you guys see that one that you know Virginia Tech has parted ways with Fuente, and two that we hired someone, especially you know hopefully Elliot, but. I mean, you'd say two, three months ago, we would never expect that we'd be able to fire Fuente. So it's going to be bittersweet, whether it's tomorrow or Tuesday when I see. Um, like in my mind, he's fired. Like, I, I guess mentally I have so moved on from this guy. And, you know, again, I'm not bragging, but but after that Liberty game, I just got to, th- you know, to me, hiring and firing at, at any school when it comes to the financial decisions, because the the only everyone agreed it's not working out. We're going to have to get rid of them. But, oh, we got to stay one more year and wait for the debate. That 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 argument drove me nuts because it's it's really a question. Once everyone agrees that he's not the right guy, then you just simply have to make a calculation of, okay, can do we lose more money with him or can we kind of muddle along um, you know, with him or without him? And, and it was so clear that we were going to lose money without him. So I was like, so after the Liberty game, you know, I – I had said he's going to be gone. I was totally convinced of it. And of course, I've only been more convinced since because everyone has, I mean, you know, I don't think almost anyone thinks that there's a few people out there that are just, I guess, they want to, they want to be pleasantly surprised. Um, but uh, no, look, I'm, I am, I am, I'm fired up in my gut, by the way, on this guy. And I just, uh, there's something about him. I, I would encourage people to watch a couple of interviews with him. He's got a, he's got a sincerity that, I don't know. There's that I just really like, and so I'm a I'm I'm giddy personally. There's a lot more. There's definitely risks here that we all talked about, but um, I'm fired up. And I will say too, to your point, Iron, he's got look next year. Not going to be looking at wins and losses. It's not going to be like when Fuente came in with a pretty solid roster and went to the ACC championship game at all. But we'll look for progress in recruiting. We'll look for development of the players, QBs, etc. By the way, last thing. Uh, Demetrius Davis was an Auburn commit. If Malzahn is fired, do we um, expect him to stay committed to Auburn? I came out with an article today. It said he is committed. Um, He's already said that. Okay. Yeah. Um, there's. I think uh, there's some things behind the scenes that he would probably have to stay. But um, well, he got a he got a bag. Okay. Yeah. So our best op- hope is that he doesn't sign early and that we can talk to him. Um, but I don't know how realistic that is. All right. Well, guys, this is fantastic. Uh, for everyone else, tune in here for these last couple interviews. You get a flavor of, of of Tony Elliott and appreciate you guys. Any final any final words? No, just an, it's an exciting time. Um, like Iron kind of said, you know, even a month ago, um, we were all being told that no way that we were going to be in this position, uh, you know, assuming uh, one day actually does does get fired. But um, so just happy, happy that's happening. Happy that. I haven't been this excited since like 2017, back when I still thought Fuente was um, going to do it. Maybe it was 2018 at some point, but at any rate, yeah, I totally agree. All right, guys, good stuff. Appreciate it. Iron's on um, at Iron Twos on Twitter. Red is, I think, a lurker on Twitter, so you don't have an account that you want people to follow you. Is that right? That is correct. Okay. <laughs> guys, have a good evening, and uh, we'll see you on the flip side. Appreciate it. Thanks, Thank guys. you. If the events of that day didn't take place, I wouldn't be the person that I am. It's the gift and the curse. 
A lot was taken away on that day, but a lot has been given to me at that intersection too. Tony Elliott's mom, Patricia, was a church-going woman whose life was often a portrait of hardship. She worked hard. She loved me and my little sister. She put up with a lot from my dad uh, for a while, and then I was proud of the fact that she was able to get herself out of that situation. Patricia had escaped an abusive first marriage and endured homelessness in Los Angeles with her two young children, Tony and Brandy. It was just us in a shopping cart, kind of, you know, working our way around. They were literally living on the streets, and that's when we actually had them come back with us to our ministry. It was a brand new start for them. Patricia eventually remarried, and on June 11th, 1989, she loaded her family into their Volkswagen van for the drive to church on Sycamore Street. I remember, you know, as we approached that intersection, my mom just yells out, and then bang, there's a crash. The car's tumbling, um, comes to rest upside down. My mom's laying on the ground, you know, halfway ejected out of the, the, the passenger window. Um, there's blood everywhere. You know, she's lifeless. My stepdad yells to me to go get help. So I run through the park, and, and I end up finding the people at the church. All of a sudden, I see Tony running like hysterical. All he kept saying was, my mom's in the street, my mom's in the street. Patricia died that morning at a local hospital. She was 35. Her nine-year-old son, Tony, was suddenly at a crossroads of his own. There were times where there was a lot of uncertainty, a lot of instability. I don't know how I did it. You know, I just somehow I got up every day and just tried to be the best that I could. With their biological dad in and out of prison, Tony and Brandy lived with relatives. Tony became a high school star in Charleston, South Carolina, and earned a football scholarship at Clemson. His wide receivers coach as a senior in 2003 was a newcomer named Dabo Sweeney. He wrote me a note after the season, and it was amazing. Basically just telling him that, you know, the reason that, that the players play so hard for him is because he loves them. He's a great leader of men uh, because he cares about the individual. The two remained close, and at a 2010 coaches convention in Los Angeles, Elliot, by then an assistant at Furman, asked the now Clemson head coach to take a car ride with him. Next thing you know, he stops the car, and he said, right there, that's where my mom died in my arms, right there. And, and it just kind of took my breath away. I looked up and the road was Sycamore. I just kind of filed that away and I was so moved that he wanted me to be there for that and see that. A year later, Sweeney invited Elliot and his wife Tamika to dinner at his home. He said, what do you think about being my running back coach? I was like, you serious? And I just kind of broke down at, the, at that moment. I was able to tell him, Tony, you know where I live. Do you know what my address is? I live on Sycamore Drive. And I said, and I wanted to hire you here. What was a terrible moment in your life on Sycamore is now one of the greatest moments on your life on Sycamore. Never did I think that at the age of nine, the last time I was seeing my mom on Sycamore Street, would I get an opportunity you know, to fulfill a dream on Sycamore Street. 
Set, go. Good, good. Here, there it is. I like it, I like it, I like it. Come on, Greg, come on, let's go. Elliot has done more than fulfill a dream. He surpassed it. The co-offensive coordinator is now considered one of college football's best assistant coaches. Runs it into the end zone. Touchdown, Clemson. A one-two punch to the Tigers. But the intersection of gift and curse will never fade for Elliot. It is in his heart and in his memories. A lot of times you smile to keep from crying, but, uh, but I'm happy. You know, I'm happy. I'm at peace with it, man. I, re I really am. And, uh, and I know she's happy. Tony Elliott, Clemson. Here we go. To fully appreciate what Tony Elliott did with the Clemson offense this season, you have to consider what they lost off last year's national championship team. All everything quarterback Deshaun Watson, two electric receivers in Mike Williams and Artavis Scott, a Mackey Award finalist Jordan Leggett at tight end, and one of the top backs in Clemson history, Wayne Gallman. This season, with new playmakers all over the field, Elliott's Clemson offense is averaging 35 points a game. They win with balance. The 2017 Clemson offense is on pace to be just the third offense to average at least 200 yards rushing and 200 yards passing a game. And first-year quarterback Kelly Bryant, well, he's 12th nationally in completion percentage. They are a big down offense. Elliott's Tigers are 10th in converting third downs. And second nationally on making it on fourth down. They also excel in the critical areas. 16th in fewest interceptions and 25th in fewest turnovers. In his seven years on the Clemson staff, Tony Elliott has played a key role in seven 10-plus win seasons. From walk-on to team captain to co-offensive coordinator, Today, another title for Clemson's play caller. Tony Elliott is a Broyles Award finalist. All right, let me catch my breath. I'm trying not to get emotional here. Um, but first, I must say it's truly an honor and privilege to be here. Uh, to God be the glory. Without the abundance of his grace and mercy, I wouldn't be standing before you today. Um, the next individual that I got to thank is, is my true finalist and my wife, Tamika Elliott. Baby, without your love, patience, and sacrifice, I wouldn't be the man that I am today, much less the coach that I am today. To the selection committee, all the, uh, the Football Writers Association, the, the Hall of Fame coaches, I mean, it's a, it's a tremendous honor that you think enough of me to consider me uh, a finalist in the, for this award. Uh, Brent... Oh, man, Brent Venables, just thank you so much. Thank you so much for what you've done for Clemson University and what you've done for me. And Julie, uh, we love you so much and, and appreciate what we talk about. When you talk about our offense, we are not who we are without getting our blood, a nose bloodied every single day, every single day in practice. And so the success that we've had over the last six, seven years is a direct reflection of what you've brought to Clemson. And I, I thank you for that, Brent. To the Broyles family, to Molly and Betsy, just wow, how awesome are you guys? This experience for, for my wife and myself to be here, um, 
not knowing much about your father's legacy until I was uh, named a finalist and researching, and then to meet you guys in the humility and, and, and the class that you have just epitomizes what everybody should, should strive to be for in a family. And I thank you so much. I never planned to be a coach. In 2011, my, my life you know, changed when Coach, uh, coach Sweeney brought me to, uh, to Clemson University. And for those who don't know much about Coach Sweeney, what you see, he's 10 times even better. He's an awesome coach, but more importantly, he's an unbelievable father, unbelievable husband, unbelievable friend. And I had the opportunity to play for him in 2003 as when he was my position coach at Clemson. And since then, he has been like a father to me. And I wouldn't be standing here without him. I also want to recognize what I believe to be the best alignment in all of college football from our administration down to our head coach. I think we have the best president in all of college football and, uh, and actually the best president across the country of any university in Jim Clements. We also believe, I also believe we have the best athletic director in Dan Radakovich, and I'm truly grateful to those individuals for taking a chance on me and giving me an opportunity to be a part of, uh, of Clemson football. I stand before you today because at Clemson I stand on the, on, the, on the shoulders of giants, which makes me actually look taller and better than I really am. And I'd be remiss if I, if I didn't take an opportunity to recognize my staff. So bear with me. There's, there's a lot of names that I, that I want to call, but they're the real reason why I'm here. First, it starts with my counterpart and co-offensive coordinator, Jeff Scott, who coaches our wide receivers. Brandon Streeter, our quarterback's coach. Robbie Caldwell, our offensive line coach. Danny Pierman, our tight ends coach. And we have an unbelievable collection of support staff, and I'm just going to call their names quickly because they're deserving of being recognized. First is Cam Aiken, Kyle Richardson, Tyler Grisham, Thomas Austin, Xavier Dye, Bill Spires, Kyle Parker, Dwayne McLean, J.P. Lossman, Sawyer Jordan, Justin Spiros, Cole McCarter, and Andrew Shippen. If you guys are watching, I appreciate you and wouldn't be, be here without you. I was asked to bring to bring it today, and, and I'm not a funny guy. I don't have a whole lot of jokes. I'm actually I'm actually a very serious individual. My background is in engineering, uh, <laughs> so so I'm very very technical and not not very very funny. Uh, but before I give it into my message, I want to thank these these other finalists. Man, you guys are rock stars. The last 24 hours around you guys has really inspired me to become a better coach, but more importantly, encouraged me continue to, to continue to fight the good fight for the sake of this game and for the sake of uh, the young men's lives that we have an opportunity to impact. My message today, I think, aligns with why we're here. We're here to celebrate the legacy of Coach Broyles. And I believe that Coach Broyles was called into the profession of coaching. He didn't choose the profession of coaching. He was called. And not only was he called, he listened to the call. Not only did he listen to the call, but he lived out the call. And I believe I was called into the, uh, into the profession of coaching. The Bible tells us that we who are teachers must be aware because we know that we will, be, we will be held to a higher standard. We will be judged more strictly. So for all of, all of those who, who are here in attendance, please understand that the legacy of, of Coach Broyles has helped save my life. I shouldn't be here. I missed all the adversity that I faced as a youngster. It was the game of football, and it was coaches like Coach Broyles and assistant coaches that he developed that helped me to become the man that I am. So I'm truly honored to be here, to be a part of this event. Hats off to all you guys. Looking forward to seeing who the winner is. But thank you, and uh, thank you.